You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. The text for this morning's sermon will be Luke 1, 1 through 25. Over the next uh, few weeks here, Sam will be looking at the, uh, the birth narrative here in Luke as we rejoice together this season and exult in our Savior's birth. Luke 1. Insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God with his division, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And when the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple, and when they, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Uh, Father, as we look at these first verses and the Gospel of Luke. Father, I pray that we would feel something of the amazing news that is beginning to take place, that is breaking into the world. Father, help our hearts to feel the joy 
to know the joy that these truths reveal. Lord, I pray you would help us have faith in in these words. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. People remember where they're standing when they receive bad news. You've all experienced bad news before. You remember the place where you were. But the same is true with good news. I can remember the very place in the basement of the Ramcota Hotel in, in Watertown when by the providence of God, I left the wedding dance that was upstairs when I was a sophomore in college to go see what was going on downstairs. There's a wedding dance going on down there. And as I walked into that room, I saw one beautiful girl dancing on the dance floor. And... I was a little perplexed because I thought I knew who all the pretty girls were in Watertown. But this was one I've never seen before. And a friend of mine actually approached her and was talking to her. And I thought, how does Aaron know this girl? So I kind of pulled him aside and I said, who is that girl over there? And he says, oh, that's Laura Johnson. And... I said, is she a Christian? And he says, oh yeah, she's, she's really religious. And uh, I remember when I heard those words that she was a Christian, my heart leapt because I thought, I have to talk to this Laura. I got to see if there's some way I can get her phone number and by the grace of God, everything worked out. I can remember standing in the doorway of our bathroom in this little tiny farmhouse in Minnesota at five in the morning. I got up really early to go turkey hunting when Laura said to me, we're going to have a baby and that she's pregnant with Ella. I remember sitting in my turkey blind that morning trying to even take in the reality of of this good news that we're going to be parents. Well, we might wonder why does Luke spend so much time talking about John the Baptist? Because the the next uh, four sermons we're going to look at, uh, Luke chapter 1 through chapter 2 verse 21, the flow of it goes like this. The promise of John's birth. The promise of Christ's birth. John's birth. Christ's birth. So what's the big deal with John the Baptist? In Isaiah 52.7, Isaiah writes, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who bring good news who publish peace, who bring good news of happiness, who who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. 
the reason why John has the most beautiful feet in the whole world. The reason why Jesus says He's the greatest of all the prophets is because He was the one who inaugurated, who came and preached good news saying the time has come. He prepared the way for the long-awaited Savior. Every time we celebrate Christmas, we might think, you know, what's the big deal? Why all these songs? You know, I hear some of you, I get so sick of hearing Christmas music starts before Thanksgiving. Stuff like that. But I want to challenge us. Are we really thinking? Are we to forget about the moment in time when John the Baptist began to speak? Your Savior, the Savior of the world, light to those living in darkness in the shadow of death. Uh, the sun has risen. There is hope and there is peace and God reigns. So this morning as we look at the promise of the birth of this great prophet, John, I hope you feel the good news and ponder what it would be like without the birth of Christ into this world. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1 and let's look at the first four verses here. And this is under your first notes heading, Know the Good News of the Enduring Word. Here's what Luke says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have, and here's the key word, certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now Luke, as most of you know, is a doctor. He's an educated man. He's a very wise man. He's a doctor. He's proven to be an excellent historian. He's a wonderful writer. He was a companion to the Apostle Paul. And Luke felt it was necessary that he do all this time, talk to all these apostles, all these eyewitnesses, and write an orderly account because there has not yet been an account written after Christ has ascended into heaven. You see, the Gospel of Luke is actually Luke-Acts. It's one account telling the whole story from before Christ's birth all the way up to how Christ built His church through the power of the Holy Spirit uh, with everything accounted through the book of Acts. It'll be more certain in Theophilus's mind. We don't know who Theophilus was, if he was a high official. We don't know who he was, but Luke wanted him to have certainty. In a time when things were passed down with oral tradition, 
He wanted the most certainty to reign with a written account that can be kept. And as we know, Luke, like the other biblical authors, was carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's what Peter uh, says in 2 Peter 1.19. He had just talked about how he got to see Christ in all of His glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He got to see this miracle where Christ glowed and he got to see Elijah and and uh, Moses standing there. And he said, we have a more sure word than this, than this amazing miracle. And here's what, here's what he wrote. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed than this vision to which you'll do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Luke's historical record-keeping wasn't just himself being a good historian, but God Himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit, made Luke's words be His words. Just like the wind blows a sailboat across the lake, the Holy Spirit carried all the authors of Scripture to say the very words of God. This is what Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Luke wrote this so that we can have certainty about the things of Christ. Many doubt God's Word in our modern culture. They doubt whether it has truly been Preserved. Some people say, well, maybe God spoke, but it wasn't preserved. Well, how weak a God is that? He wanted to communicate with His creation. And He communicated clearly once, but He couldn't preserve His Word. No, the Lord has preserved His Word and has made sure so that we can be certain of the good news in fact, in Isaiah 40, which we're going to look at in a, mi in a minute, verses 6-8, through eight, this speaks of John the Baptist crying out about the good news. Here's what it says. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass... The grass withers, the flower fades, but get this, but the Word of our God will stand forever. People fade and die. A flower loses its beauty, but the Word of the Lord will stand forever. When I was flying back from Africa, Troy and I were sitting next to a young man who 
was a quantum physicist. And he was wondering what we were doing in Africa, and we started a conversation. And I could tell that he felt sorry for Troy and I that we are believing such myths. You know, it's, it's like we just weren't smart enough. He knew the physiology of how the brain works. He basically told us, I know there is no God and none of this is true, but I'm sorry. You're just not going to be able to understand it because you're not smart enough. You're, you're, you could just feel the sense of, you guys are nice. That's nice. You went over and, and tried to help these Africans, but well, what does God's Word say? People fade like a flower, but God's Word will stand forever. And so right off the bat, before the good news is pronounced and begins to unfold, Luke tells us, I've written these things so that you may have rock-solid certainty about the things of Christ. Second, know the joy of the promises of God fulfilled. Look at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before the Lord, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now anyone who has been barren knows how painfully devastating it can be to want children and not be able to. In those days, it was especially devastating culturally when continuing family lines was valued to a degree that we can hardly understand. An inheritance can't even be passed on through the family. So you're a second-class citizen. It may be that way even for those today. Barrenness is the result of the fall where we recognize the world is broken. Pain in childbirth is a reminder that things aren't right. When children die, when wombs do not produce children, it's just a reminder of how humanity has fallen and is in need of a Savior. And it's amazing, all throughout the Bible, whenever God, it seems like, is going to fulfill a promise, He seems to almost always do it through barren women. When God made a promise through Abraham, your children are going to be as many as the sand on the seashore and the stars of the sky. When He says kings and princes are going to come from your family and they're going to inherit the land. He makes this promise to a man named Abram, the father of many, whose wife, Sarai, cannot have children. And at 86 years old, 
Sarai, later named Sarah, had an idea. Abram, if this promise is going to be fulfilled, you got to do it. Sleep with Hagar, my servant, and get your children that way. Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. But you know the story. God's promise wasn't going to fail. He came to Abraham and at 99 years old, he, con- he confirmed his promise and at 99 years old, Abraham had a son, Isaac. And it was God's way of saying, if I make a promise, I don't want you to think man is going to fulfill it. I am going to do this thing. And they had Isaac, and Isaac married Rebekah. And Rebekah also was barren, but she was able to have uh, get pregnant and have Jacob and Esau. And Rachel was also barren. So this promised line that God promised children to come from comes from barren women. And so as we get to this point where it says Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years, our biblical antennas ought to go up and say, what's God about to do? This is like a signal to He must be going to fulfill a promise. And then in verse 8 it says, now while He was still while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot, this is all in God's providence, to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. So imagine... I don't know what the altar of incense looked like, but if it was there, right there, the angel of God is standing clearly in front of him. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. This is always the experience of anyone who came in contact with an angel. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now I'm just here to tell you that if you were barren, and God miraculously, through an angel, came and said, You're going to have a child, and His name shall be this. That name is important. This isn't God's preference of what sounds good. When God renames someone, He renames them with a purpose. When God tells them you're going to name this child John, it carries a very important meaning. John means God is is gracious. When John is born, his very name means God is gracious. And then he says in verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Many will rejoice at the birth of John for he will be great before the Lord And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit 
even from his mother's womb. This is unusual. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John is the one who comes and paves the way. And when he comes, many will rejoice because he is a fulfillment of a long-awaited prophecy. In Malachi 4, verse 5, the prophet Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he'll turn the hearts of the fa- of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So before the great day of the Lord comes, a prophet's going to be sent. He's called Elijah here. In Matthew chapter 17, the disciples asked John, asked him, or asked Jesus, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? How are they supposed to believe Jesus is the Christ if Elijah hasn't come? He answered, Elijah does come and he, or Elijah does come and he'll restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they pleased. As you remember, they cut John the Baptist's head off. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that He was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So this promised one to prepare the way of the Lord was John. John himself said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Well, what is he crying? What does the prophet Isaiah say about the one who is going to come and prepare the way? What is he crying out of his mouth? Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 40. This might be my favorite chapter in the Bible. What is John's message? How can his message help us understand the joy of Christmas? Isaiah 40. We're going to read most of this. I'll, I'll leave out a few verses just for the sake of time, but Isaiah 40 verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the uneven ground shall become level. The rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh should see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
So John's job is it's very difficult to get over a mountain and walk down a valley and back up a mountain. John's job is to come and to make level. Prepare the way. Prepare people for their coming Messiah. For their coming Lord. And a voice says in verse 6, Cry, and I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all of its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. See, this is a, this is a flashing red light saying, whatever is about to be cried out is going to stand forever. And then he says, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God, behold the Lord comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold His reward, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. Look at verse 11. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms and He'll carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with Him. So the one who's coming, the one He's proclaiming good news about, is going to shepherd a flock tenderly. Like a shepherd would pick up a lamb and hold him right to his chest. This is what the Lord is going to do. The one with the mighty arms. He's going to shepherd His people. This is good news to God's people. But here's what makes this absolutely amazing. Well, who is this tender shepherd? What's He like? Who is the one that's going to lead us like this? And then He goes into this shocking section of putting forth our wonderful Lord. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollows of His hands and marked off the heavens with a span? Who has gone like this and measured all the heavens, all the stars, all the galaxies? Who's held all the waters in the palm of His hands? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in a scale in the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows Him counsel? Whom did He consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. And then verse 17, And all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted as nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness shall you compare him with? Then in verse 21, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth emptiness. Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely are they sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when He blows on them 
and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created all the things, who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, who named all the stars, who just flung them out there. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He does not fate nor grow weary, and His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, He increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. See, this is that verse you always hear quoted. And they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You see the good news? John is coming to say, God is a tender shepherd. And He will hold you in His arms. And by the way, God is the Creator of the universe. The One who holds you. The One who has come for you is the God of the universe. These are not little songs we sing about. These are not little, just fluffy thoughts. John was coming to proclaim that the God of the universe was being sent in the flesh to shepherd His people. Do you know the joy of the promises of God fulfilled? At the birth of John, those who understood Isaiah 40 rejoiced. Unbelievable. He's the one that came to prepare a way for our Lord to come. Look at point three in your notes. Know the fight of faith. Look at verse 18. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And then Gabriel gives his credentials. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring you, bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe My words which will be fulfilled in their time. Here's the point. Is it, doesn't Zechariah have a reasonable question? For how, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Here's how. You see me, Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar, and I'm proclaiming to you something that the prophets have been proclaiming was going to come to pass. You see, the angel is real. It's a real vision. He saw Gabriel. He heard the voice of Gabriel. And Gabriel wanted to know how in their old age they could have children. You might think, well, it's, it's kind of harsh that he goes silent. So what's the big deal with unbelief? With the doubting heart. 
You see, we're taught that unbelief is there because of lack of evidence. Zechariah wasn't lacking any evidence that he needed to know that God was talking to him. When I was sitting next to that gentleman on the plane, it wasn't that he was lacking credible evidence. It's that his heart was hard. We're told that Zechariah is a holy man who trusts God. So why does his faith struggle? Why does his faith doubt? Why did Abraham say, how can I know that I'm going to possess the land? If God talks to us, ought that not be enough? Unbelief is so ugly. For those who never have trusted in Christ, it'll be the reason why they will not live forever with Him in heaven. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, who have saving faith, our faith is a fight. Doubt is always crouching in our sinful nature. Not, not to believe the things we have clearly in front of us. If you were to leave here today an unbeliever, it's not that God didn't clearly reveal your sin problem to you. It isn't because He didn't reveal His saving plan by sending His Son. It isn't because that Son couldn't produce enough miracles to prove that He was from God. It isn't because He failed to be a perfect sacrifice on the cross for sins. And if you leave here today a non-believer, it won't be because no one else saw the resurrected Christ for hundreds saw Him. It isn't because Jesus failed to prove to be the fulfillment of more than 300 prophecies before He came. It isn't because He failed to preserve an accurate account of the events of His life. It will not be because you are more intellectually honest to refuse to have blind faith. See, that's what this gentleman was basically telling me. I, I'm too intellectually honest to believe in God. I can't go on blind faith. Well, Zechariah wasn't blind, and in his eyes saw, and he still doubted. Unbelief is at a heart level in our fallen nature. It's not because God has failed to reveal Himself to the world. So let's learn from Zechariah. This was common in Jesus' disciples. Remember Luke 24? Uh, the two men walking on the road to Emmaus, they're, they're talking to Jesus. They don't know it's Jesus. They're all bummed. Here's what they say. Moreover, some of the women are com of, of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and they did not find His body. They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said to them, He was alive. Well, some of those who were with us 
went to the tomb and found it, just as the women said, but him they did not see. Two guys walking. Oh, so bad. Did you hear what happened? Yeah, the women, our women went and they saw angels and they said he's alive, but we went there. We didn't see him. What is this? Well, Jesus tells us what it is. Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. You remember the storm comes, save us, we're going to die. What does Jesus say? Why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? Peter's walking on the water. That's pretty amazing. There's pretty good evidence there to trust Christ. But then he begins to look at the waves and he begins to sink. And Jesus says, he reaches out his hand, grabs him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Don't you hate the doubt within even your saved heart if you're a believer? I hate the doubt that comes to mind. Here's what we need to know about faith. Faith is a fight. Here's how Paul described his life. He, or Here's what he charged Christians with. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul knew the true nature of saving faith. It's a fighting faith. It's a faith that isn't magical, that just works on its own and doesn't need to be strengthened so it perseveres to the end. Listen to Romans 10, starting in verse 9. Speaking of faith, he says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes. He doesn't say the mind. He says, with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then here's what he says, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without a preacher? And then here's the key. So, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. How do you fight the fight of faith? That your faith remain strong. Well, faith is strengthened as you hear the Word of Christ preached, the Word of God preached. Why do we come here every Sunday? If you're already a believer, don't you got your deal done with God? Well, saving faith is the faith that perseveres to then. How is it going to persevere to then? By hearing the Word of Christ. 
You come here to have your faith strengthened. And don't you feel it? Don't you come in here sometimes doubting and then you hear the Word of God and you feel your faith become strengthened? That's why the writer of Hebrews tells us, if I can find it here, in verse 3, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, brothers, lest there be an evil, unbelieving heart, because that can begin to happen in our hearts, doubts. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The writer of Hebrews is saying, Christians, don't give up meeting together. Every day you need to speak truth to each other so that doubt doesn't start to take over your heart. Know the fight of faith. Know how we can persevere in believing in the Lord. And look at verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among people. She was second-class Jew because she was barren. She said, The Lord has taken away my reproach by giving me this child. And I'm here to tell you that because that child spoke of this other child, he prepared the way for Christ, your reproach and my reproach can be taken away. Romans 15.3, For Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. To be under reproach is to be unaccepted. To not measure up. Christ took your sin. Took all of your failure on Himself so that you wouldn't be under reproach. Listen to Colossians 1.21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, above disapproval before Him. That's the miracle of the Gospel. The great God that Isaiah 40 talked about. When Jesus died for you and took your reproach, He is now able to thrust you before the God of the universe before His Father, and there's no disapproval. 
because your reproach was taken. He paid for it. He took the punishment so that you could get the reward of the perfect Son of God. What would the world be like without the hope of sins forgiven? Without the hope of resurrection after the dead? After we die? The only reason why there's any hope in this world is because good news was preached to sinners. All the way back at the fall, it began to be prophesied from the seed of the woman, Satan would be crushed. Sin would be done away with. Death would be conquered. So, will you have Him? Will you trust Him? Will you believe this certain word that Luke has laid down for us? It's my prayer that you'll realize there is no hope apart from Him. Father, what great news we have that Jesus Christ was born and that He came to this earth not to just make a good Christmas story, but He came with the purpose to die on the cross for our sins. This is what we need, a perfect sacrifice. Father, thank You for Your amazing love for us. Let us never lose the joy of knowing our great salvation and knowing Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.